Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back team for part two of our best bits of 2021 and the first thing to say is a huge happy new year to all of you because it is now 2022 and you know what they say it's a new year new me but I can't quite say goodbye to the old me without looking back at some more of the most high value snippets from the expert guests we've had on the show through the course of 2021. At risk of sounding like I'm giving a best man speech or collecting an award at the Oscars, I just have a few thank yous that I want to start off the show with. Firstly, a huge thank you to all the guests who've given up their time free of charge to come on the show and provide their expert knowledge and how it can be applied in a PACES setting. I also want to thank a few people who've helped me significantly in the first year of this podcast running. First of all, to Sarah Hill, who is a brilliant, albeit brutally honest, sounding board for the majority of my podcast ideas and also provides all the cover artwork for the show. Thanks to Alice Watson for helping with some content creation. Thanks to Nick Haralambus for his invaluable advice during the early stages of podcast production. And last but not least, and certainly most importantly, thank you to all of you who have given up any amount of time to listen to the show. I still have to pinch myself daily at the numbers of listeners I'm getting, so huge thanks to you guys, and I hope you'll keep listening to the Pre-Paces podcast in 2022. But without further ado, let's get started on some more of our best bits from 2021. Our first clip looks back at our episode covering hypertension with Dr. Angus Nightingale, consultant cardiologist from the Bristol Heart Institute, who helped us discuss the broad and varied topic of hypertension. As part of the discussion, we discussed the various types of secondary hypertension. This is hypertension caused by a distinct condition rather than essential or primary hypertension. This is such a broad topic, but Angus managed to somehow sum up in a very short amount of time the broad range of diagnostic investigations which are helpful in diagnosing patients with secondary hypertension.
But then, as we discussed earlier, there's a, a very broad variety of differential diagnoses, which all potentially have their own um, diagnostic investigations. So we're going to sort of take each of those in turn as, as much as we can um, to try and at least give you um, the most specific and diagnostic investigation for these differential diagnoses. But there are quite a few of them. So um, so Angus, if we if we just run through the, the different diagnoses we discussed earlier and, and what will be the most sort of specific investigation for those. OK, so when, we, when we're seeing somebody with, you know, who you're thinking about, could this person have a secondary cause for hypertension? Statistically, the most common thing is going to be hyperaldosteronism. So primary hyperaldosteronism, so excess aldosterone. So we'd want to try and measure an aldosterone renin ratio. And the important thing there is that lots of the drugs that we give alter the renin uh, aldosterone number. So you need to actually have people not on any drugs that interfere with the renin aldosterone system. So typically you have to stop their ACE inhibitor, their beta blocker, their calcium channel blocker, and pretty much doxazazine is about all we end up giving these people. So it's best if you can do that. And that's a blood test that needs to be done while they're, they're sort of, you know, recumbent and, uh, and not, ex- uh, not kind of, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, been standing up very recently. So, so that's the, the most common thing. And renin aldosterone ratio, uh, is something really, really helpful. Then the the next sort of group of people we think about are the people with excessive catecholamines and how we pick that up. And traditionally, you can either do uh, a 24-hour urine collection or you can do a blood, so plasma catecholamine or metanephrines, as we tend to do now. And you have to be a bit careful because a number of uh, um, things like paracetamol can be, give you a false positive on the uh, on the urine catecholamine. So you would do a 24-hour urine collection for, for catecholamines. Thyroid function, we've talked about, and we would just do um, a blood test for that. Acromegaly, you've got to really think about it here. So you, you're going to do some specific tests like your glucose tolerance test to look for, for diabetes and, uh, uh, and serum uh, IGF-1, that kind of thing. Excess cortisol is a tricky, tricky one here. So, so you can, if you do suspect this sort of thing, then you uh, are going to want to do a low-dose dexamethasone suppression test. Sometimes people do uh, 24-hour urine cortisols as a sort of screening test, but it's not terribly good at that sort of thing. People that you suspect sleep apnea, uh, you need to do some kind of uh, overnight sleep uh, study. So uh, sleep study with polysonography and then overnight oximetry to look for that dipping. Um, We talked a little bit about renal artery stenosis. uh, And so the problem is that renal ultrasounds don't do that. So CT scan might be helpful for that. And CTs are, are actually much the best way of looking for adrenal masses as well. So if you're suspicious that someone's got a pheochromocytoma or more commonly primary hyperaldosteronism, then I think a CT scan can be very helpful. And um, although it's relatively, so if you do if you do see evidence of excessive aldosterone, you then want to go on and do very specific things like uh, renal vein sampling to see which side uh, or which side of your which of your renal, uh, adrenals is producing excessive um, aldosterone because you can get tumors um, you know you can get these masses but also you can just get diffuse um, hyperplasia of the uh, uh, of the adrenal glands so different different kind of features there so a CT scan uh, in addition to the ultrasound uh, and the ultrasound of the um, of the kidneys may show multiple kidneys uh, um, sorry multiple cysts in the kidney if you've got someone we've got polycystic kidney disease occasionally you can use MR uh, or MRI um, and that's what we do in our clinic but that's because we've got a research interest particularly in that. MRI is particularly good at looking for coarctation but CT scan is also pretty good for that as well 
And I think things that are coming in more are also looking in the brain for evidence of small strokes or what we call uh, white matter hyperintensity lesions. As these look as if there's something that might be very relevant in the progression to dementia later down the line. And we're seeing more of these in middle-aged people, which is a bit scary, but something, you know, it gives you another thing to talk to patients about and helps them to actually make uh, the necessary lifestyle changes, which are very important. Um, you know, when they actually think, well, I, might, I can avoid dementia maybe if I do something here. Perfect. So that's a really comprehensive rundown of, of pretty much all the investigations that you should, uh, you should mention to your examiners. But obviously, this is going to be tailored to the exact history which you've been given. But hopefully, you've got a good idea of the, the range of specific investigations which, which are used to try and diagnose these patients. Our next clip comes from our discussion with Dr. Jen Collinson, our resident acute medical registrar with an interest in stroke, where we discuss transient ischemic attacks. And Jen talked us through the various differential diagnoses which are known as the mimics of TIAs and the features of a history which can differentiate between them. I know from personal experience, TIAs is something I really struggle with. And so chatting with Jen, who was able to shed some light on this was so, so helpful not just in paces, but for my general medical on-calls as well. So you've taken your systematic, focused, comprehensive history and performed a focused examination in a patient who you think may have had a TIA. But now Jen and I are going to talk about the potential differential diagnosis of these patients. This is going to include some of the diagnoses which we spoke about earlier, but others where there are potentially no other symptoms to ask about in your history of presenting complaint. So Jen, I know we spoke a little bit earlier about some of these, but what are some of the differential diagnoses of a patient who has symptoms suggestive of a TIA? Um, so there are many differential diagnoses. I think probably the most common two that come up in TIA clinic are migraines and seizures. For migraines, classically, the symptoms are more gradual onset. I mean, it's worth saying that migraineous aura can present in many ways. It doesn't have to be visual obscurations. It can be sensory symptoms, motor symptoms speech problems and also the aura doesn't always have to precede the migraine it usually does but sometimes it can be during the, the headache episode as well but the classical thing with the neurological symptoms associated with migraine is that they tend to be of gradual onset and kind of spreading um, and take time to reach maximum also then the symptoms may not make sense in terms of vascular territory so you might have somebody with some speech disturbance and left-sided weakness which is would be unexpected unless they were left-handed of course headache features so if you've got headache in your history you've got to be pretty suspicious although I guess that's not always always the case you can have migraine migraineous aura without the motor symptoms but I think that's getting very tough for paces <laughs> um so I think you'd be very very unlucky to get that kind of case. I was just going to say, I think the the other thing which differentiates migraine from the TIA is something you mentioned earlier, which is the positive phenomena that you tend to get with migraine. So those the the flashing lights or the lines across the vision, that's the scintillating scotoma, as they're called, would be sort of clear differentiators between a patient who's having a TIA where you get predominantly negative symptoms with loss of vision or loss of function, as opposed to these sort of flashing lights, which you would expect in migraine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. With sensory symptoms, likewise, 
a patient will often say the arm felt funny or they lost sensation. But if you drill them down on that, it actually turns out that it's pins and needles. So you want to be clear, was it pins and needles or was it numbness? Could they not feel anything? Or was it a strange sensation? The other thing with migraine is that usually patients presenting with migraine with neurology have usually had migraine before. You want to know about their headache history have they had headaches for a long time have they ever had neurological symptoms with their headaches and that is a really strong indicator that you're probably dealing with migraine although for the purposes of real life we do mri scan patients presenting with headache and transient neurological symptoms all the time because there is an overlap and you have to be really careful so i think unless you're 100 percent sure it's migraine say that it could be a tia it could be a migraine and you'd like to get an mri and a stroke opinion to differentiate between that because people get caught out calling transient neurological episodes migraine and stroke is not black and white it can cause positive symptoms it can cause headache so for the purposes of real life just be a little bit careful and if you're not sure speak to a stroke physician or refer the patient to a clinic excellent disclaimer there love it yes and then moving on to the other differential diagnosis which should fit into our our range of differentials one of them you mentioned already was seizure activity but i guess this may not be sort of sort of generalized tonic clonic seizures jen they're going to be more sort of maybe more focal seizures i'm gonna be slightly chicken and start with a disclaimer again on this one um in that you have to be pretty careful because sometimes strokes can present um, with a seizure at the time of onset. So if you have somebody who's had possible seizure episode with residual you know, neurological symptoms or deficits on examination, then again, be, be careful. But um, for the purposes of PACES, you want to kind of establish in your history, did the patient remember it all? Was it witnessed? What, did they... Uh, were they witnessed to lose consciousness or have any abnormal activity um, in abnormal movements in their arms or legs? And usually, again, for seizures, it's positive symptoms rather than negative symptoms. So they don't completely lose function of an arm or leg. Um, they may notice abnormal movements or they weren't able to control it or there were sensory symptoms. But I think the biggest clue that this is seizure is if there was amnesia for the episode. Then I'm then I'm that really raises my suspicion. Yeah. And would you say that in the case of TIAs, that would be quite unusual not to remember the, the episode. Yeah, unusual, not impossible. <laughs> disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> Transient global amnesia is a whole different topic and an interesting phenomenon that nobody really understands the etiology, but there is a theory that TGA is, is basically a TIA affecting the memory parts of the brain. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense if you can have deficits from blocking off other bits of brain that resolve, then it makes sense that if you did that to the bit of your brain that has memory, the patient would present with an episode of amnesia. A bit nuanced, a bit complicated. In real life, speak to a stroke physician and get an MRI scan. But um, by and large, patients who present with amnesia for the event and then particularly if they've got postictal symptoms, if they've had incontinence or if they're witnessed to have seizure-like activity in their arms and legs, or if they've had any reason to have seizures. So if they've got any abnormal brain or head injury or neurological pre-existing neurological condition, then you're um, suspicious that it could be seizures. Yeah. And for more information on seizures, you can go back to our seizures episode with neurology registrar Hamish Morrison. 
Oh, I feel like I should listen to that. I might learn something. <laughs> <laughs> Have you said anything that's conflicted with me, Sam? No, no. Oh, it, all good. Okay, great. <laughs> And then just mentioning something, um, another differential, which again fits with another previous episode of this podcast. So demyelination or multiple sclerosis as a cause of um, possible um, visual obscuration is a possible differential diagnosis if the patient has presented with visual disturbance. And again, for all the info on optic neuropathy, you can go back to our episode with Dr. Luke Bonetto. And just before we recorded this, Jen mentioned another differential, which would be incredibly bold to put as your preferred diagnosis in paces, but functional neurology is a cause of this sort of presentation, but it would be extremely bold to put at the top of your list, but would potentially be worth mentioning if all other tests came back negative. Next up, we have our chat with Dr. Tom Batty, a rheumatology reg based on the south coast in Sussex. And we sat down to talk about back pain with a focus on ankylosing spondylitis. Now, more and more in paces, it seems as though they're moving away from spot diagnosis stations to station fives that focus more on patients with known conditions who might have a complication of that condition. Since ankylosing spondylitis has so many associated issues related to the condition, Tom gave us the lowdown on the types of associated issues you might see in a patient with ankylosing spondylitis. And then the other thing, Tom, which you, which you already alluded to a little bit, was associated symptoms with ankylosing spondylitis. And there's a there's the typical sort of thing of the A's of ankylosing spondylitis, which are sort of the associated complications and some patients um, may present with these, but I don't know how often you see these in your clinical practice. Do you often think about the, the multiple A's of ankylosing spondylitis? Yeah, so the, the A's, so most of them are pretty rare. So I'm just trying to remember what they are now. So you've got your aortic regurgitation, seen one or two patients with that, but it's, it's not a common association, but it is something that's worth keeping an eye out for. There's uh, AV block which I don't, I'm not sure if that counts as one of the A's or not, but I think it's one of those things that is, if you look for it by doing sort of ECGs and cardiac MRIs on everyone, then you find it's actually very common. But I think in terms of whether it causes people any symptomatic bother is, is, is a bit more debatable. And it's, it's not something we commonly face as a, a huge issue in the rheumatology clinic, but something to be aware of. Anterior uveitis is very common, and that is something that we find it is, is a big issue. What are the other A's? Amyloidosis is one that we see rarely these days. So that's obviously AA amyloidosis, which is associated with long-term uncontrolled inflammation and tends to present predominantly with um, nephrotic syndrome. You know, these days we like to think we treat people before they get to that stage, but it is, it's something that you know, could come up in a sort of paces type scenario, if, even if it is rare in real life. Um, Achilles tendonitis is, you know, part of that enthesitis syndrome. Well, Sam, help me out. What other A's are there? So the ones that I've got is apical pulmonary fibrosis uh, yes. because it's the yeah. only connective tissue disease or only inflammatory condition, which is associated with apical fibrosis as opposed to basal fibrosis, which I think majority of other um, inflammatory conditions would produce normally. Mm. It's definitely something you read about. And I think, I think I've seen one patient with it. It's, it's really not very common. What is much more common in terms of chest involvement is to just to get restriction. So just 
um, because you get a sort of enthesitis of the ligaments and a chronic costochondritis. You can get reduced expansion of the, the, the chest wall, which causes a restrictive lung defect. That's actually really common. But apical lung fibrosis itself does happen, but it is, it is rare. And aortitis is another thing which is associated with AS, but it, which does happen, but is, is quite unusual. Perfect. So I guess in just in summary for that little section, so the, the things you want to be asking about in this part of the history will be, so anterior uveitis, you're asking about red eyes, painful red eyes. Definitely. Really important question. And then the other symptom, which I guess is sort of related to the fibrosis, but also possibly to the AR would be just exertional breathlessness. But again, we're probably overcomplicating things in terms of the history, but these are just things to demonstrate that you know some potential complications of AS. Mm. And as I say, the, the more common cause of that is, is chest wall um, restriction. Next up, we have our first ever double header episode where we welcomed renal physicians, Dr. Jim Moriarty and Dr. Ravathi Jain to the show to discuss the mammoth topic of renal transplants, which as you well know, is a real Pacers classic. And I was so pleased to discuss this episode with Jim and RJ, who gave us a comprehensive rundown on everything you would need to know in this station. In this clip, Jim describes exactly what you should be looking for during the examination to really cement your diagnosis of a renal transplant. And then after inspection, we come to palpation of the abdomen, which obviously covers the conventional examination where you're palpating lightly for tenderness and, and then palpating for masses. And the most important thing in a patient, if you have found a scar suggestive in an iliac fossa, suggestive of a renal transplant would be the way that you examine that particularly will confirm or refute your suspected diagnosis and and following on will determine how well you're able to present to the examiner the the exactly correct state of this patient so jim in terms of palpating the transplant itself within a broader palpation of the abdomen how would you suggest the candidates proceed with confirming that this is most likely to be the kidney transplant I think if you've had a good look around um, and you've seen the scar, and I don't know if we really talked about what the scar looks like, um, but it's quite difficult, I think, to um, to mistake it for anything else once you've seen a few. So uh, it'd be well worth when, uh, when you finish listening to this excellent uh, broadcast doing a quick Google image search on kidney transplant scars, because I think you'll, you'll see quite, quite a few and get a real feel for what they look like if you're not doing a renal job at the moment. So you've got this kind of curvilinear incision. It looks a bit like the Nike swoosh, doesn't it, I think, in, in either iliac fossa. Um, and if you can only see it on one side, I would just go straight for where the money is and, and start palpating there, uh, so long as everybody's happy that you proceed. And you will feel a, uh, a an organ roughly kidney-sized and shaped uh, in, the, in that space. I don't think there's any other particular sort of magic to it, really. Um, depending on the body shape, it might not be exactly underneath the scar. So there will be a little bit of uh, mobility, hopefully too much, not too much. Uh, you don't want to be um, having problems with the vascular and ureteric uh, supply, um, but it might not be bang under the scar. So if, if you go for where you think the transplant is likely to be and you can't feel something, have a bit of a feel around. Um, it can be quite difficult if somebody is very overweight with a lot of central obesity, uh, but persist. And if you really can't feel anything, they may have had a transplant nephrectomy. So then perhaps you're going back and, and thinking about having a closer look at the other side uh, or thinking about whether this might be 
a, a kidney that's not not working anymore. And as we said earlier, are, are there any signs such as a working fistula that's been used recently to suggest that? So feeling, I think that's probably uh, where you can uh, sort of call it a day at that point. If you've had a, a feel, you feel a kidney shape. Uh, uh, organ uh, where it shouldn't be then uh, that's your diagnosis um, in terms of other things you might want to do uh, it's probably worth having a listen uh, maybe think about how you're doing for time um, if you've uh, spent uh, a big chunk of your six minutes already then you might want to skip over that uh, you can sometimes hear an arterial brewing related to the renal blood supply um, and very occasionally you might hear something like an AVM um, in the kidney from a, a for example a, a transplant biopsy uh, but i think you're, you're probably heading for full marks if you if you get into that stage in the examination renal consultant jim moriarty there and it wouldn't be fair to hear from one of our guests who came on to discuss renal transplants without also hearing from the other dr ravathi jane talked us through the correct structure of how you should present these types of patients back to the examiner this is such an important thing to master if you're going to nail this type of station which comes up so frequently and Jim rounds off the discussion at the end of the following clip. We've examined the patient and now we're moving into the second part of the station which is the presentation and questions from the examiner. So there is quite a well-defined system how you should present these patients back to the examiners and this is a system that worked for me. It's important to find something that works for you as well. And I think as long as you present it in a logical fashion, which makes sense to the examiners and includes all of the pertinent details, you won't go far wrong. But we're going to give you a system which we hope will be helpful in framing your presentation of these patients. So RJ, if we start, what should be the first thing which you start with your presentation back to the examiners? Again, I think this is should be pitched with uh, how confident you are about the station. So if you've not already been told in your preparation phases, if you're happy you know what's going on, then you should go for where the money is. And, and in this case, hopefully you would have picked up the transplant. Um, and so in that case, I would state that you believe this patient has had or has end-stage renal failure. Um, uh, we're currently with a renal transplant you may, at this point, if you think you've uh, identified a cause for their renal failure, discuss those things at this point. But in reality, that may not be the case. And so that can always come to the end of your presentation in terms of mentioning a differential diagnosis. So, yes, I think the first thing to say is that you believe the patient has end stage renal failure, that they currently have a renal transplant and uh, describe your findings to support that as well as other findings, if you have identified a potential cause and reasoning why that may be, whether that's finger prick marks or lipoatrophy or peripheral neuropathy, whatever that may be for diabetes, or if on the abdominal examination you find a nephrectomy scar and a bilateral kidney suggesting a PKD, well, they should go at the, the start of your presentation. So then, RJ, you've gone through the possible differential diagnoses. What should be the next part of your presentation? Um, so the next part is really commenting um, if you identified any previous forms of re renal replacement uh, therapy. In the case of a functioning transplant, uh, you, you may have identified that there is a fistula that isn't working well. Um, and I think that's worth mentioning to say that this patient has 
previously undergone renal replacement therapy in the form of hemodialysis, as evidenced by arteriovirin venous fistula on whatever side, it appears to be non-functioning, as evidenced by this. You may then also, at this point, mention that there is evidence of other forms of renal replacement therapy. Uh, for example, if you identify any scars in the neck or um, on the chest wall, um, and you can always, if you find that you saw two additional scars that may have been associated with the PD catheter, again, at this point, I would mention those things. Lastly, sometimes you can detect signs, as we discussed during the examination part as well, you can detect signs related to what immunosuppressive therapy the patients are taking. So uh, you know, I think as a renal physician, I'd be a bit anxious about say, writing a prescription on the basis of any of the signs you might see. But certainly classically, uh, most patients having a kidney transplant are treated with steroids, uh, less and less so, but certainly a good chunk of the, the cohort that will be available for PACES exams will still be on steroids. So that's your kind of classic Cushingoid appearance, maybe some thin skin or some bruising or purpura. Uh, and if you've done a full abdominal examination, which uh, hopefully you uh, remember to do as part of this station, uh, they may have some uh, central adiposity, some strii, that sort of thing as well. Um, there's kind of specific classic examples of uh, drug-specific signs you might see with cyclosporin. It's the gingival hypertrophy. Um, so they may have signs of, uh, of gingival bleeding as well, or possibly some more dental work than you might expect if you've had a bit of a look uh, in their mouth. Uh, with tacrolimus, resting tremor is certainly a well-established side effect, but with stable patients with relatively low TAC levels, um, it wouldn't be a surprise if you didn't see anything there at all. But certainly if someone's uh, hands seem to be shaking a bit, just ask them to pop them out and, uh, and, and hold them there for a second. If you've got time during the examination, that m might indicate uh, TAC, could indicate cyclosporin as well, but more likely than not, you're not going to see anything. And uh, many of the immunosuppression drugs that we use will not have very much in the way of, of clinical signs. There may be some things you'll pick up on blood tests, but for a drug like azathioprine or microphenolate mofetil, um, you're probably not going to pick up much in the way of clinical science by the bedside. Perfect. And we're going to discuss some of the complications related to immunosuppressive therapy when we go on to the common examiner questions. But just to summarise this system, which includes pretty much all the information that you would need to provide to the examiner to demonstrate you have a good understanding of how to present a patient and the, and the variety of signs and considerations you need to have when assessing these patients. So just to summarize, you're going to state that the patient has end-stage renal failure, and you're going to try, if you can, to determine the exact etiology. And then going on from there, describe the reasons why you think it's that specific etiology. If you can't, you're going to list the possible differential diagnoses, which we've mentioned. You're going to try and mention any forms of renal replacement therapy, including the transplant, which um, may be evident during the examination. And you're going to try and determine as well as you can if the transplant is functioning. And if the transplant is functioning, you may well find signs of previous renal replacement therapy in addition to that. And then finally, you're going to talk about any indication of the immunosuppressive therapy, which they may have, uh, which they may be taking at the time of the examination. Next, we were joined by Dr. Alison Evans, a consultant in endocrinology and diabetes, who joined us to talk through acromegaly in paces. Now, I think most of us would be familiar with the typical features of this condition, but the management is something we don't typically see on a regular basis on the medical take. 
due to it being more of an outpatient managed diagnosis. Alison talked us in detail through the important principles of managing these patients with acromegaly. So then moving on to our management of these patients, obviously we've talked about the potential cardiovascular risk associated with acromegaly. So you're going to be, first of all, educating the patient about the condition, trying to optimize their cardiovascular health. Obviously you're going to advise them to stop smoking if they smoke, optimize their alcohol consumption, and then manage the additional comorbidities such as hypertension and diabetes. But in terms of the definitive management of acromegaly, what is the strategy that you use in your clinic in terms of definitive management? Yeah. So if you have somebody who's formally diagnosed, they've definitely got acromegaly biochemically and they've got radiological abnormalities on pituitary imaging, then the default setting is surgical management. So essentially, along with Cushing's, for example, um, if you've got a functionally overactive pituitary tumour, the first line is going to be surgical management unless there's a reason not to. And obviously, that's going to depend on individual patients, frailty, other comorbidities and so on. But the default is they will be having usually transphenoidal surgery unless there's a reason not to. Um, now, sometimes in patients who've got lots of symptoms, lots of other comorbidities, or they're just very biochemically active, we may medically manage them to try and improve things before they head for surgery. Um, but the default would be usually surgery is first line and we would reserve medical management generally for people who we've been unable to achieve a full biochemical cure with surgical management. Right. So that segues us nicely into medical management for acromegaly. And so there's a few drugs. And for me, when I was doing my revision, these are all sort of drugs which were sort of tacked on the end of acromegaly. And I never really understood yep. how they were used in the context of uh, a patient who's either been treated surgically or maybe hasn't been treated at all yet. So um, I wonder if you could just run through the, the, the types yep. of drugs which are used in, in patients with acromegaly. Yeah, so essentially there's three main groups of drugs. You've got dopamine agonists like bromocryptin or cabergoline, which most people are probably more familiar with in the context of prolactinomas. Um, but as I said earlier, quite often um, these tumours will co-secrete prolactin. And we can use those, if you like, to medically take the edge off things. They're not going to get you from an IGF-1 of 100 down to an IGF-1 of 10, but they might just help improve things. And the time that I tend to use these is in people who, for example, may have had surgery or may have had radiotherapy sometimes that you're just waiting for that to kick in. Or some of the elderly, frail patients who don't want an operation, but would just want to take the edge off the hormone levels. I've never seen them get things back to normal, but they're a tablet, which, you know, some, a lot of people prefer. Um, the somatostatin analogues, octreotide, lanreotide, somatulin are injectables. We will sometimes use them pre-op, particularly in patients who are quite comorbid, just whilst we're trying to improve other things, for example, diabetes, cardiovascular status and so on. Um, or we will use them in patients who've had pituitary surgery, um, but it's not got a biochemical cure. So, for example, if people have had a big tumour, which they've been able to debulk but not remove completely because it's wrapped around the carotid artery or whatever, We'll, we'll use um, somatostatin analogues to bring the levels back to normal. 
sometimes if we've had patients who've had surgery and or radiotherapy, radiotherapy particularly doesn't work straight away. It can take two or three years to have a full effect. You you might use a stomatostatin analogue to bring the hormone levels down whilst the radiotherapy is working. And then as time goes on, you sort of gradually pull back on the dose and hopefully you can then stop it. Pegvisimon is a growth hormone agonist that I've never used. It's only really done in tertiary centres and is really reserved for people who you've tried everything else and they've still got significant biochemically active acromegaly. Um, and you'll, you know, so quite often with these patients, even if we don't achieve a biochemical cure, if you can get the, the IGF-1, the growth hormone, lower than it was, it's still better in the long run. It's a bit like with people with diabetes. Even if you don't achieve perfect sugars, a sugar level of 10 is better than a sugar level of 20. Um, so they can be quite a complicated group of patients to manage. If you're talking about pituitary surgery, if they've got small adenomas, so sort of less than a centimetre, we've got a reasonable chance of achieving biochemical cure. But the bigger ones, we quite often don't. And even when on, you know, first look post-op, they think they've got everything out. Quite often we find there's little bits left in, in sort of tucked behind arteries in funny little corners you just can't get to. So essentially the aim is to get your growth hormone levels back to normal if you can't, if you can't get them normal as good as you can. One of the, one of the things I wanted to ask was, are the patients who at surgery, they know that they, are, they have some remnants left, are they at risk of recurrent disease? Any patient who's had pituitary surgery for, for a tumour, even if the surgeons feel they've had complete resection at the time and levels go back to normal there's always a chance it can recur so you know any patient who's had acromegaly they're under follow-up for life you never get rid of us if you like there's a group of patients that they know when they go in they're not going to be able to achieve a biochemical cure just because of where the the tumor is you know so we've got surgical options we've got options of either standard regular therapy or stereotactic surgery which they do for us down at bristol But if the tumour is very close to the optic chiasm or very close to the big blood vessels, it's not safe to give radiotherapy or to reoperate. So sometimes you just have to accept that there will be, you know, a degree of residual tumour. Now, sometimes pituitary tumours, when you operate, if you debulk them, sometimes it's almost like they just say, that's it. Okay, fine. I've had enough. I'm not going to play anymore. But other ones, you think you've got a lot of it out and they're just there's little bits here and there. And they just grumble and grumble and grumble. And so even though you look at a post-op MRI and they've had a really good result and you really can't see anything anywhere, sometimes there are little residual bits. The other thing that we've just, I say, started doing locally, we're not, um, you can do what's called a methionine PET scan. Um, they only do those in Cambridge. And those are very specific at identifying residual areas of overactivity in the sort of the general area of the pituitary, because quite often there's bits around in the cover and the sinus and so on. So I've had a couple of patients who've had those done, which have picked up areas that you don't see on conventional imaging. So if you really want some brownie points, mention methionine PET, um, but you're not going to get them done in your local centre unless you work in Cambridge. So it's, it's one of those, sometimes you know you're not going to be able to cure the patient, but you're trying to optimise things.
So there we have it guys, those are our best bits of 2021. We really hope you found these helpful along with all of our other episodes which we didn't have a chance to cram in. Let me first say that next year is going to be huge for the Pre-Paces podcast. We're talking new websites, we're talking bonus content, we're talking extra episodes on stuff which may or may not be loosely related to the MRCP, but one thing is for sure. We will be back next year to continue our quest to give you the best chance to pass paces and we plan to go even further and give you the best chance of being a brilliant medical registrar. So stay tuned, stay stay so stay tuned, stay safe, stay classy, and most of all, stay listening to the Pre-Paces podcast into 2022. 